You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he let the dogs out. He, 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 he. <laughs> I did. And I let the cat in. <laughs> and, yeah, put out the dog and, wait, what's it? Bring, Bring in the dog and put out the cat. Yakety yak. And I, and don't talk back. Yeah. Look, if I'm going to go hang with my hoodlum friends outside. Yeah. That's, uh, what was that? The trash man that did that song? Nah, is this, is this the all <laughs> trivia question? I can't remember. No. Um, <laughs> uh, yakety yak. I have it as the coasters here. Okay. Yeah, that's probably who it is. Yeah, the coasters. So, hey, how have you been? You we're, you sounded kind of sick last week, Jeff. What's I going was, on? Anything well, you want to you know tell what? us? <laughs> yeah, last week I was a little under the weather, as they say. Yeah. By the time we finished recording, I slept. As, until Friday and then worked all day Friday and then slept from like 7 o'clock in the, at night on Friday until sometime Saturday mid-morning, I tested positive for our good friend COVID-19. Yeah. So I'm still overcoming the uh, the effects of this particular variant, which I call which I call the FU, Big McLarge Huge variant. <laughs> it wasn't terrible. It knocked me down for a couple of days, but it yeah. didn't knock me down too hard. Yeah, that was about the, uh, the long and the short of mine. I had... You know, fever for like four days. And the first day, uh, or the first full day, I should say, I slept for like all but five of the 24 hours, and they weren't in a row either. Yeah. Uh, your little variant, the one that was going around whenever you got it, uh, my friend Jen apparently got the same one because mm-hmm. she felt crappy but tested negative for like three days. And on day three, she started testing positive. And that's the same thing that happened to you. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And how I signaled that I was ill, I was too tired to cook. And I am <laughs> never too tired to cook. So I made an order on my computer to the local Chinese restaurant and had food made for me. I, all I wanted was like wonton soup and an egg roll and to go to bed. And that's how I fed my son and I that night. My daughter was working. And I was on the phone with my girlfriend and she says, you did what? I said, I ordered Chinese food. She goes, you are sick. You never order food out. Did you have it delivered? I said, no, I didn't have it delivered. She goes, oh, all right. I was going to call an ambulance if you had it delivered because that, <laughs> that would mean that you were probably going to die. Yeah, I ate my wontons and then I went to sleep. I had my brother bring me some stuff from the grocery store like once or twice. My friend Joe brought me mac and cheese because he owed me a COVID favor because I had brought him food when he was sick. And then I ordered Domino's Pizza a couple of times because I had a lot of PayPal credits. And Domino's Pizza <laughs> accepts PayPal. Hey, you know what? Not that they sponsor the show or anything, but that's my go-to, man, on nights where there's just too much going on in the winter. If I'm on the way home from the gym and I don't want to – I can't cook because I don't have enough time, you know, based on the window when I eat. Yeah. I will I will sometimes pick up the old uh, Domino's. It's not bad. Yeah, I like their pizza. I actually have an issue with Domino's Pizza where there must be they must put something on the food that the part of your brain that says okay you're done eating yeah. it doesn't click with me i will <laughs> no. i will put the last gob of food down my throat with my thumb because my tongue has yeah. has quit yeah and yeah. then give me 10 minutes and i'll try eating another slice yeah well, i don't know what around. it is maybe it- Maybe I left another slice of pizza in that box. No, it's just as empty as it was when you looked 10 minutes ago. Yeah, and then I, you think, I know why they sell these in like, you know, two pizzas for one price special. Because because it's for me. One. I can't stop eating it. <laughs> you want the second one. All right. So uh, this is going to be the week beginning. Halloween, Jeff. Halloween. Ooh, spooky. Yeah. So, of course, I have a trivia question for you. Yes. Which has nothing to do with Halloween, even though it probably should uh, Hallelujah. It's a, it's a trick-or-treat for me, then. Halloween hater. So, 
Yeah, I, I stumbled across this one. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty funny. It actually takes place during our week. Okay. On November 4th of 1979, a world record or a record was set for the lowest amount of yards by a team in an NFL game. It was the Seattle Seahawks against the Los Angeles Rams. That's the only information I'm giving you. Okay. Yep. Lowest amount of yards in that game for one team. And that so for the whole so like the number of yards that they gained for the entire game was the lowest. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yep. It wasn't yep. like one play where somebody got pushed back 500 yards and you know. I don't sudden, think that's possible. I, I don't integers, know. right? <laughs> I, I don't know much about football, but I know that part's impossible. <laughs> well, you know, they picked a the guy up in the parking lot. You know, and they bring him back in. But, yeah, okay. Uh, I'll come up with some numbers that probably are wrong by the end of the show. Very good. All right, but this is the week beginning, October the 31st, a.k.a. Halloween. And even though it is the greatest holiday of all time, it is your turn to start. So start the week, Jeff. <laughs> October 31st, 1969. Probably the foundation of all classic rock radio stations gets their best album ever. Led Zeppelin releases Led Zeppelin 2. Arguably the best second record that any band has ever put out at Ooh. any time. Yeah, that's that's a bold statement that I will not argue. I will say it's their best album. Come at me. I I, I oh, that's no, I don't well that, everything is subjective, but it's definitely my favorite album from them. I was going to say no no argument for me. Like generally there's the sophomore slump or the change in tone or whatever. Man. Right. Not with this one. Nope, this one is just everything that was great about Led Zeppelin turned up to 11. It still sounds fresh and listenable today. I love it. It's one yeah. of my favorites. Yeah, We've brought up the Coke and Pepsi mentality of this country. And one of the Coke and Pepsi arguments were two British bands, oddly enough, where when I was in or we were in high school, you were either a Led Zeppelin fan or a Pink yep. Floyd fan, and it was very rare that you found both, you know? Yeah. Yep. Uh, hey, you like Pink Floyd? Uh, no, I like Led Zeppelin, which you say that now, and that doesn't make any sense, but that is the right. way it went. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I remember. And I liked Pink Floyd, so I didn't listen to Led Zeppelin a lot, but I like Led Zeppelin now, and it was Led Zeppelin too that kind of like brought, you know, the slow drag in. I. And, Every song on this album is a killer. Every, every song. song. Yeah, every song. There's, there isn't a dog to let out on this whole on either <laughs> side. Um, I found myself listening to Led Zeppelin like for real yep. when I was about 20. That's a long time for our teenage years for me to not to only know Led Zeppelin in passing and like Stairway to Heaven from eighth grade and freshman year school dances, right? Yeah. But when I was driving back and forth to community college, I had this little piece of junk Chevrolet with a good stereo in it. Mm -hmm. And I had one tape. I had Led Zeppelin too, and I was I listened to that one incessantly and started buying the other ones because I was looking for a song that I heard on the radio, and I didn't know the name of the song or the record that it was on, and it uh -huh. turned out to be the song "Over the Hills and Far Away," which uh -huh. I had never heard before. But that opening acoustic guitar was amazing, and didn't know what record it was on, didn't know the name of the song. This is before the internet. Yeah, uh, and I wasn't confident enough in myself to walk into one of our local record stores and go, "Hey, can you help me find this song?" and then start. Pretending to like mouth guitar that, yeah, that song, right? So they would laugh at me. So I ended up buying Led Zeppelin one because I already had Led Zeppelin two, and I bought the one with um the the, the very last one that they did with the under the streetlight song. And I'm like, it's not the one. It was finally it was the last one that I bought. <laughs> And had that song. So that's how my luck tends to run. Of all of them, the only one that I listened to and bought in other formats was Led Zeppelin 2. Yeah. Love that record. I, uh, I'm i looking at the song list over here, and, like, all of the songs have, like, like the song Whole Lot of Love is, like, 400 million listens, Heartbreaker, 100 million, Ramble On, 200 million, and then my favorite song on the album, Livin' Lovin' Made, is a, a respectable 19 million. Like, it's such a heavy drop-off from the rest of the album. I'm like, what are you kidding me? That Well, that was my entry song. That was my uh, my gateway drug into Led Zeppelin. Was Yep. And I only found out what the lyrics at the beginning of that song were, like, maybe a couple of months ago. Because <laughs> it's not just Robert Plant having, like, a shrieking Tourette syndrome fit. Yeah, I was mad, dude. Seems I like. Yeah, I thought it was. 
Which is fine. If that's the lyric, I'm good with it. It sounds like a Volbeat right. song. Yeah. But no, it's with a purple umbrella. He says it funny. Umbrella. With a purple umbrella and a 50 cent hat. Which I makes like the screaming part. Only better. slightly more sense than the. <laughs> bit, 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 bit. All right. Yeah. Moving on to November the 1st. November the 1st, 1512. Michelangelo unveils his masterpiece of the ceiling at the Sistine Chapel at oh, the Vatican. That must have been something. I'm sure the Pope thought, uh, I think this is a probably going to overshadow the mass, don't you think? <laughs> uh, you got to throw so many penises. Uh, you could have <laughs> dialed that pick. back a bit, I think. <laughs> I don't want to pick. Michael. Angelo, but there are us. It's like a sausage fest in here. <laughs> I said a Sistine Chapel, not sixty penis chapel. <laughs> so yeah, he worked on that for four years. He started that in fifteen oh eight. I've never been to the Vatican, and I think I'll probably go my life without seeing the Sistine Chapel. But most famously, there is that you know the picture of uh, God touching Adam. But that is like a fraction. Of the ceiling oh, yeah. at the Sistine Chapel. That is like probably 2% of it. There are some cool sites where you can go and like explore it online and go like picture by picture through it and stuff. Yeah. The, the only thing I could think of that's uh, like marginally related to this that I have as a story is there was this woman at work who, let's just say, not the brightest, not the brightest. And I remember one time that she was like complaining that she had to help her daughter who was in the sixth grade do her math homework and she just didn't understand it. Like, wow, lady. Yeah. So later on, like months later, she the, the Dan Brown book, was it Angels and Demons? Yeah, that was the first one, right? Angels and well, Demons. Maybe, no, she was reading Da Vinci Code because I remember she, she called it Da Vinci the Code, right? So she was reading... <laughs> yeah. Da, da Vinci the Code. Yeah. It's like Jabba the Hutt. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> so uh, so she was reading Da Vinci the Code, and I said to her, I go, I don't mean to pick on you, but how are you reading this book when you can't handle a sixth grader's homework? <laughs> and she goes, oh, no, I just think it's so interesting. I'm just like, you know, going right through it. I go, well, what part are you up to? And she's like, well, right now they're all in the Sestin Chapel. And I go, <laughs> oh, oh, the what? She's like the Sestin Chapel. I go, all right, that's that's the Sistine Chapel. And she goes, whatever. I go, no, no, not whatever. You're a Catholic. That is the Pope's church. That is headquarters. You gotta know what it's called. All right, it's, it's ground zero for your yeah. religion, right there. The Sestin Chapel. I give a lot of leeway when I encounter that, and I, every time I want to cackle at someone mispronouncing something like that. I hear the words of Asimov in the back of my head, which basically says, like, don't make fun of people who mispronounce words that are hard to spell because they probably only learned it by reading, which is, you may not necessarily know how the letters sound together. So I always, I'm like, ah. Admittedly, I laughed at <laughs> Da Vinci the Code, but that all sounded like Da Vinci the Code. It's not so. like the Sistine Chapel is like this obscure place, Jeff. That's it's like true. The Wheat House. I mean, come on. <laughs> That's admittedly, yes. Um, and you'd think that the building would be well enough known. All right, let's go on to the second. November the 2nd, 2003, the sitcom Arrested Development premieres on Fox TV. It's created by a guy named Michael Hurwitz. It stars Jason Bateman, Portia de Rossi, Michael Sarah, a cast of characters and others that have worked their way through that show yep. and was unlike anything else that was on TV at the time. I lived that program. And would host viewing parties at my house. I remember whenever I bought this house, I had just moved in, and you had come down, and you and you brought me a quote unquote housewarming present. <laughs> yep. And it was the DVD box set of season one of Arrested Development. I was like, uh, okay, because I'd never heard of it, you know. Right. Yes. Or at least I knew it existed. I just didn't know anything about it. And you said, sit down. And watch this. Just watch two episodes with me and guarantee you, you'll be hooked. And I absolutely was. That show, like you said, was like nothing else. That show was just be beyond funny. Not only did I guarantee you'd be hooked, I said, if you don't like the show, I'll give you $30, the equivalent of whatever the DVDs cost as a housewarming gift. Yeah. And then, right, yeah, yeah. 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 No, it was great. Yeah. 
I still have it. I'm staring at it right now. I ended up buying the subsequent seasons and then watched the uh, the Netflix seasons that were posthumously, I guess you could say, resurrected. Yeah. Resurrected around the other projects of the cast that, that was involved. Yep. Anus tart. I, there's so many, so many quick quips. I bought about 10 or 15 copies of that DVD set because I gave it to everybody that I could think of. Oh, really? With the exact same deal I gave you. I'll watch the first couple episodes of this with you. If you don't like it, I'll give you 30 bucks. If you like it, you can keep it. I did that to my brothers, to my mom, to my dad. (laughs) And I've, like, watched the first three episodes of that show so much that I don't even watch those anymore. Right. But uh, I absolutely loved every minute of it. It was the funniest thing. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen on TV. And I don't think it was the first sitcom to not have a laugh track, but that's something very noticeable about it, that there is no laugh track. It, yeah, that is sort of shot like a documentary, but it's not. So yeah. it's all single camera and handheld stuff. So it's it feels super duper immediate, even though there's a lot of intimacy in the way the characters are presented. And, and uh, launched and relaunched the career of quite a few people because Jason Bateman, prior to Arrested Development, his career had been pretty stagnant. You know, what did he do? Teen Wolf 2? Uh, <laughs> Teen Wolf 2, he was on like the Hogan family. Right. right. Yep. I don't think he was getting a lot of work, but he ended up in this, and the cast of the show went on to a lot of really good things. Jessica Walter, who played the matriarch of the family. Yeah. Lucille Bluth went off to become the leader of Archer's organization on Archer. Yeah. Pretty much playing the exact same character, <laughs> only animated. Portia de Rossi went off to do stuff. Michael Sarah uh, was in a bunch of indie films. Oh, yeah. Michael Sarah was everywhere yeah. after Arrested Development. All right, moving on to November the 3rd. November the 3rd, 1956, a box office flop makes its way to network television. A movie you may or may not have heard of called The Wizard of Oz makes its television debut. It actually became event viewing. It was, I think, the like one of the most viewed things that was on TV in 1956 mm-hmm. and gave a whole new life to the film. Weirdly, because in 56, color television wasn't really a thing. I'm not sure what the penetration rate was for color television at the time, but it was very small. And I don't know that it was ever broadcast in color until the 1960s, because if you remember, the first 10 or 15 minutes of The Wizard of Oz is in black and white. Yeah, yeah. Oz, it's I all think it's color. close to the 20, but yeah. I absolutely loved The Wizard of Oz when I was a kid. We got it over here is coming out in November. When we were kids, I think they used to air it in May. They used to air it once a year, and I remember it being in the springtime, like May. And we would watch it every year. I would insist on watching it every year. Yeah, my, we watched it every year when I was a little kid, too. The other effect that it had on television, though, was it showed that there was an audience for older, were no longer circulating through cinemas, in some cases for 20 years or so, Yep. and that it, was, it probably was less expensive if the studio didn't already own an, a percentage of the rights to their library to buy the film and license it for television than it was to pay to make a movie of the week. Right. So very, very quickly, sort of long-form film-style dramas disappeared from television, original ones, and were replaced by films that could be licensed and shown. And then it took a long time for the evolution of television writing and filming and editing technology to catch up with what could be done, made for, like, TV movies. I'm interested. I have uh, two things that I'm interested in seeing. I don't know what the original filming aspect ratio of Wizard of Oz was, because I don't think the 16 to 9 standard was the standard until much later. So I don't know if the original Wizard of Oz was filmed in like a box, like a 4-3. I think it was pre-Cinemascope. Okay. I'd have to go back and look. So, the, yeah, so I'm interested to see what the original you know, the original aspect ratio was because I never bought it. I never bought, bought it on DVD or Blu-ray because I was like, why? I've seen that movie a bazillion times and furthermore, I watched it for free a bunch of times too. Uh, so I'd be interested <laughs> in that. And then I have a Laurel and Hardy box set, and they actually did a silent version of The Wizard of Oz earlier than the uh, the Judy Garland musical. I'm, I'm not surprised. Yeah. I've seen it, but I remember zilch about it. I'm going to have to go back and watch it again. You ever done the Pink Floyd? I, I tried the to do that. Yeah, I tried to, to do it and sync it up, but I never had a TV and stereo in the same like location at the mm-hmm. time. I could probably do it now, but I, I don't know. My my friend Kai really wanted to. They had mentioned 
wanting to see that. I was like, oh, I have it. I have a, a DVD that I burned that has the, you know, the, it's synced up now, you know. And we got through about, I don't know, 10 minutes of it and everybody started talking and not paying attention yeah, and well, it's, it's not it's, really, happens, it's, right? it's not as interesting as everybody makes it out to be no yeah i think that people that tend to impose that the relativity and patterns on things when they're mixed that way yeah all right moving on to november the 4th november the 4th 2010 microsoft connect is a device that's sold as an add-on to the xbox which allows you to jump around like an idiot in front of your xbox and interact with specific xbox games that are connect enabled it also causes a giant privacy panic when that (laughs) when that happens (laughs) because unlike games like the wii which is what microsoft was trying to sort of compete with right where you could interact by waving around a couple of plastic doodads the connect used a camera a webcam that was connected to the Xbox and mounted on your flat screen TV or whatever. And it mapped what you were doing and that created the controller motions that you would have that interacted with the game because it's a networked device and it has a camera on it. There was the big concern that nefarious, I'm saying this with air quotes, nefarious air quotes, even that nefarious actors would be able to hijack your Xbox connect camera and surveil you in your own home. Booga, 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 booga. Yeah. And watch you dance around like an idiot. Yeah. Yes. The, the bigger argument that here is not the whole American paranoia, Rockwell, somebody's watching me thing. I'm talking about video game peripherals that just flop. And you would have to really search hard to find a video game peripheral that didn't flop. Most of them do. Right. Yeah. Xbox wasn't the only one that used the camera technology to sort of try and duplicate what you were able to do with the Wii. Mm-hmm. I have the PlayStation version somewhere still downstairs, which connected, I think, to the PlayStation 3. And it was oh, a, effectively a... Yeah. It was, yeah, it was effectively a webcam and two red and blue plastic controllers that made you look like the guy who's guiding the plane and airplane. Uh, um, I thought that and, made you look like a lonely girl on prom night. Uh, <laughs> I have... See, I have that. I have the camera and I have the move because... That's how the VR, the PlayStation VR worked. And I like the VR. I played it a lot. But that's another one. By and large, it kind of flopped. And the Nintendo Glove. Remember that one? (laughs) I do. The Nintendo Glove. I have no idea what that thing did. I don't think Nintendo knows what that thing did. Well, I mean, it had to compete with the Sega Shoe. It had ah. to compete with the Atari underwear. and yeah, the Atari you know, jockstrap, right? It only has one button. Yeah, well, that's okay. The games suck anyway. <laughs> <laughs> like the original Nintendo came with like, Robbie the Robot that played like the gyro game. Yeah, I've, I never, I've never seen one of those other than in photographs from taken from a, like a 1988 Sears catalog that showed it. Yeah, I don't I know anybody who had a Nintendo that ever had one. Yeah. Tony Hawk, the Tony Hawk skateboarding franchise, was like one of the biggest franchises ever. And they shot themselves right in their goofy foot when they released the Tony Hawk game with a skateboard peripheral. Right. One, they were kind of done with the franchise anyway. And two, it's like, oh, I get to buy another controller? Great. And <laughs> Awesome. Just yeah. what I need. This is at the time where selling peripherals for people who play games isn't that hard because it's... You know, Guitar Hero is becoming a thing at Rock yep. Band. And so, like, I want my little baby guitar with the five buttons on it. You know what I mean? So I can play along with Sweet Home Alabama or whatever. Yeah, over-specialize and, and things go horribly wrong. Yeah. My friend Ryu said it best. I don't want to jump around and play video games. I want to sit down and play video games. I, I will say this, and this is, you know, from somebody who's – my son has, a like, an Oculus Rift or something, VR headset, yep. is watching videos of people – run full stream into the wall Yes, using those on YouTube brings me hours of belly aching enjoyment. <laughs> I can watch people like crash over coffee tables and throw the controller through their monitor. Oh, I can watch that all day <laughs> and laugh every time. November the 5th, 1605. Uh, your friend of mine, Guy Fox. That guy's a- no friend of mine. Yeah is arrested for setting up 36 barrels of gunpowder in an attempt to blow up King James I and the English Parliament. He was an asshole. <laughs> yeah, he got caught and his accomplices got caught and they all got taken care of in the most uh, governmental way of 1605, which was drawn and quartered and 
ripped apart and set on fire and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I learned about Guy Fox long before V for Vendetta came out. Right. I lived in England during the time when Guy Fox night happened. So it's November 5th. That was the very first semester that I was in England. We had a trip from the campus in Arundel to Lewis in Sussex. I think I know that guy. Yeah. Uh, where they have this monstrous, huge effigy of Guy Fox that they set on fire and shoot a sh- surprisingly large amount of fireworks around and thousands upon thousands of people go. I did not love watching the effigy burn because it was it was sort of anticlimactic by the time it happened. Also, I was very drunk. But I will say that the potato soup that I ate walking up the hill in the middle of downtown Lewis to the site where the effigy was is the best potato soup that I've ever eaten. Nice. Oh. See, there's my Guy Fox memory. At least you can bring something out of it, yeah. It never fails, uh, although it's dialed back a little bit now because I've blocked most of those people on Facebook. But... Every year on November the 5th, the people that tend to like fancy themselves as smarter than other people will talk about Guy Fawkes. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll bring up the poem, you know, remember, remember the 5th of November or whatever it is, as if Guy Fawkes is some sort of hero. But they're confusing the fictional Guy Fawkes from V for Vendetta, who's an interesting character, with the real Guy Fawkes, who was... A terrorist in every definition of the word. Yeah, he was like Tim McVeigh. Yeah. You know, I'm sure 500 years down the road, maybe somebody will make a movie where some dude spouts Timothy McVeigh quotes as a way to overthrow the fanatical government, I I guess, (laughs) uh, because that's what happened with Guy Fawkes. But we certainly don't celebrate the dude. An effigy probably is too good for him, to be honest. And that potato soup is way, way too good for him. Way too good for him. All right, let's wrap up the week. November 6th is uh, one of our favorite things. It's a silly holiday, and it is Marooned Without a Compass Day. It doesn't sound like a great holiday, but the best way to celebrate that day is to just go for a walk and not really pay attention to where you're going. Or go out for a drive with me. (laughs) Exactly. Where are we going, Bill? God, after if I know. So we've become, as a society, and I'm fine. I am fine with technology. I'm not... I think we've talked about this before. I'm not the type of person that romanticizes about how great things were before electricity, you know? So, like, now in 2022, you want to go somewhere, you just pop that address into your phone and off you go. Before that, we had the GPSs that you could put in your car. I remember my brother had one of those. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, you would look up the directions on the internet, print them out from MapQuest or whatever the hell. And that's how you got places. But I remember having to call up the location (laughs) and get directions that way. You know, I remember calling up the Paradise in Boston. I was like, hey, I'm coming to see Marillion next week. And he's like, congratulations. Like, so not into me. And I was like, dude, I need directions to your place. (laughs) And they're my favorite band. And I just want to go see them. Anyway, and whatever directions you gave me were shit. Because I ended up getting lost. It happens. I mean, we both come from the generation before, yep. you know, where I remember my dad saying, like, do you have directions to get there? It didn't matter where I was going. Right. You know how to get there? Do you have directions to get there? And it wasn't like I could go anyplace. I used to have to call and ask. But I still interact with my, my in-laws. My, my father-in-law is 84 years old this year. Wow. And he gives directions like this. Uh, You want to go down, you know, the state road? Right. Well, there used to be a waffle place. <laughs> it's gone now. There's some trees there for a while, and but you go past that, and then there's like a big curve in the road, and you'll see a big oak tree with a birdhouse in it. Well, the birdhouse is gone now. That's Smith's house, Smitty. So I went to school with Smitty, and uh, you want to turn right at Smitty's house, and it's you'll find like there used to be a post office, but it's it's like a, it's a coffee place now. It's good coffee. You ever get coffee there? Like, just give me the directions, please. Yeah. <laughs> get me there. I drove. You know, I drove to Disney World, and basically the directions that I got were. I-95 South, and then take a right at I-4 when you hit Daytona. All right, go on to the celebrity birthdays. Born on Halloween, 1942, actor David Ocean Steers. Probably best known as the talent scout in the movie Magic with Anthony Hopkins. (laughs) Or if you can't remember that one, that tour de force, he was the father on Better Off Dead. Yes, everybody's wearing those this year. (laughs) <laughs> but I think the role that everybody's going to remember him more than anything else is Charles Emerson Winchester III on MASH. Ah. Yeah, he was a latecomer to the, the series. He replaced the Frank Burns character. It was a, such a 
different dichotomy between his character and the Burns character, you know, interacting with, you know, the two troublemakers. He played a very elegant kind of like, uh, came from, I think he went to Harvard. The character went to Harvard. He was very uh, upper class and then, you know, stuck in the war as a doctor. I remember him from that show. I remember him being very, I think the phrase is effet, like upper class. Yeah. That was where his sort of humor came from, even though he, he didn't necessarily gel with the other surgeons in the hospital, but he gelled with them on like a mission level, if that makes any sense. Like he was still committed to the same stuff yeah. that they were. And Yeah. Even though he didn't get along with anybody, he was still a very much a team player. Right. Yeah. Yes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Moving on to November the 1st. November 1st, 1947, songwriter, piano player, goofy-looking guy, and <laughs> shout-out to Meatloaf, Jim Steinman. A songwriter who can fit 5,286 words into a three-and-a-half-minute song about a motorcycle crash. <laughs> yeah, that first Meatloaf album, he effectively wrote, like, all the songs, right? Uh, uh, let's just say this. Of the good Meatloaf albums, yes, he wrote them. He wrote them, and Todd Rundgren, Rundgren produced them, but he and, like, Meatloaf were a, a pair. They worked together, not just on that record, and the, I think this is the one that followed it. But they worked together on other stuff, too. They were definitely tied together. He also wrote things for, yeah, Bonnie Tyler and, and other songs that you'll you'll bump into them now and then if you watch, like, or if you listen to 80s radio or, or watching, like, MTV retrospectives and stuff on YouTube. Yeah. And you'll spot it because you're like, what word did he use? <laughs> it doesn't come up again. But, like, <laughs> who works anti-disestablishmentarianism into a song about, like, a ghost? He does. <laughs> Now you know what it's like doing a podcast with you, with your Halcyon days. <laughs> That's right. All right, moving on to November the 2nd, 1962, actor David Schwimmer, probably best known for his role as the principal in Apt Pupil. <laughs> or Young Thark Warrior in John Carter. Uh, no, he's best known for being Ross on Friends. He was yeah. also fantastic in Band of Brothers and has done all kinds of bit parts and cartoon voices and other stuff. His IMDb page is very long. Yeah, it's kind of strange that he's like not more visible. But, you know, we've established this before. Not everybody wants to be Johnny Depp. I don't even think Johnny Depp wants to be Johnny Depp at this point. But, but you know <laughs> what I mean? Not everybody wants to be super famous. What's funny, like his as acting ability, I think it exceeds his. How should I, how can I say this in a way that doesn't sound judgmental? And I don't mean it to be, but like he has a certain look. He's a unique looking person. Yes, he doesn't fit the type that you would expect for leading man material by virtue of his appearance. And sure. I think that that has impacted the roles that he's been able to get. Not that he hasn't done great things, like you mentioned, apt pupil. He has a small, small role in that film, but it's very good. Yes. Playing the guidance counselor um, character. All right, moving on to the third. November 3rd, 1921, Charles Bronson, who has been in every iconic piece of American action cinema from the 1950s until the end of the 1980s when he shuffled off his mortal coil. Probably best known as that guy in the House of Wax with Vincent Price. <laughs> he was also... Bernard O'Reilly in The Magnificent Seven, or Bernardo, as the kids called him. He right. was number six in The Dirty Dozen. He was Paul Kesey in the Death Wish franchise, which has approximately three cinematic films and 425 directive VHS, <laughs> increasingly ludicrous knockoffs. Among things like Kinjite and some other action cinema, he got roped into the canon films family, like in the 1980s, and just kept pumping out goofy action movies but not like gritty cop old man action movies right as opposed to like karate ones or whatever he's kind of like that almost like the the generation before is danny trejo where he just looks like he'll kill you he's just got that i will kill you <laughs> face but he's an actor playing a role you know and going back there, like, uh, you know, I knew him from the Death Wish movies because they were on HBO all the time and my father yes. would watch them. And I would watch them through peaked fingers most of the time. Right. But I remember we were watching The House of Wax with Vincent Price. Mm -hmm. And my father says, you know who that is? And I'm like, no. He goes, that's Charles Bronson. And I'm like, come on. Because yeah. he was real young in that movie. Yeah, so he you was. Know, he yeah, was. You know, he didn't have that Charles Bronson look to him at the time. No, nope. he did. My favorite of all the Jaws ripoffs. It's a half Jaws, half Moby Dick ripoff called White Buffalo, but where you can see the white buffalo on the the like the like railroad tracks that's chasing him uh, through the snow. 
Did Ted Nugent do the theme music? <laughs> no. He was in a, a great uh, action film with Toshiro Mifune called Red Sun, where he ends up as a backstabbed train robber tied up with this Japanese samurai trying to retrieve a ceremonial sword that's going to be delivered to the president. It's absolutely outlandish, but it's a super fun movie to watch. <laughs> Speaking of outlandish, uh, November the 4th, 1969, a man with so many names, he doesn't even know what his name is anymore. Uh, <laughs> Sean Combs or mm-hmm. Sean Puffy Combs or Sean Puff Daddy Combs or Puffy or Diddy. I think it just goes by Diddy now. I think so. Do what Diddy, Diddy, Dum, Diddy, Do. Doesn't he sell sneakers now, or is that Kanye West, Yeezy? I don't that's, know. That's Kanye West, sorry. I, I don't know. I, I remember in the early goings of the 2000s, I guess it was, or maybe even in the late 90s, where right after Notorious Big died, uh, you know, Sean kind of rode that wave and put out a bunch of songs. And one of them in particular sampled the police's Every Breath You Take. And it was like, you know, it was a tribute to his friend that had died. Yeah. And I always just thought it was kind of weird, maybe tacky, mm-hmm. that he was like cashing in and making all this money. And what really got me about it was, I think I've established before, I'm a, I'm a wrestling fan, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And he was doing an appearance, you know, Vince McMahon always used to like to get celebrity performances and stuff like that. Right. I think it was on the tribute to the troops, you know? So... He's over there coming down to the you know to the ring to perform and the music starts and it's you know the sampled music of the police's every breath you take right and he's like you know I want to dedicate this song my fallen friend yeah notorious BIG and I want to dedicate this to all our fallen soldiers that protect our country and he's going on and on he goes but now I got to dance. And then he just starts dancing. It's like, I don't know. You didn't really set the mood for dancing there, Puffy or Diddy or whatever the hell your name is. We'll do the memorial windmills. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) At some point, Bill, we'll talk again about Sean Puffy Combs, I'm sure, on the worst song ever. I will say, though, he's managed to keep the Diana Ross song, I'm Coming Out, alive for me. I hear that as the undertone to the Biggie Small song, More Money, More Problems, than I ever hear of the Diana Ross song. And it's one of my all-time favorite Diana Ross songs. So I got to give him props for that. All right. Who do you got for the fifth? November 5th, 1931, Ike Turner, American musician, band leader, producer, uh, all around difficult guy to categorize with a lot of things in the pro column. <laughs> but uh, it is his birthday. And the reason we sort of bring him up is without Ike Turner, we wouldn't have Tina Turner. Right. That's actually like a really funny story where like he really thought that he was the star and she was just sort of like the whatever. Yeah, he's and, deluded. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. did she pass him? In the, oh, yeah. <laughs> in the home stretch, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ike Turner ended his career up as the like the guy that you would see at the bottom of the bill at like the Whaling City Festival. Like, right. Ike Turner, you know? <laughs> Meanwhile, Tina Turner is like sharing the stage with you 2 and... David Bowie and, and, yeah. And David Bowie and, yeah, God, and Mick Jagger and, you know, who else, but... And she was like super famous way beyond what most people consider to be prime. She yes. was in her 40s, yeah. Oh, yeah. But anyway, Ike Turner... Ike Turner, I, I, funny story about him is when Frank Zappa was recording Overnight Sensation and Apostrophe, he leased out the studio from, from Ike Turner. And Ike Turner sure. threw in the Ikeettes. Ikeettes is Tina and three other backup singers. They all sang on Frank Zappa's, those two records of his. And okay. what's funny is he threw them in because, and with the stipulation that Frank Zappa wouldn't pay them any more than Ike paid them per day. And they only got 125 bucks a day to work like 12-hour days in the studio. So he paid right. them like minimum wage workers and made Frank Zappa pay them, including Tina Turner, like a minimum wage worker to work on his records with him. Yeah, whatever you do, don't give my wife too much money. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's so funny. Like following up on the story from, from what I've read is it took a long time for the Ikeettes to figure out how to do the weird time signatures singing that he Frank Zappa wanted. But they finally right. got it. One of them finally got it and sort of helped the other three. And then they all did this right crazy chorus. So they were all excited after hours and hours and hours of fighting with this song. And they brought Ike Turner in and like, listen, listen to this. 
And they put it on, and he just looks at him and goes, what the hell is this shit anyway? And then turned around <laughs> and walked out. Because he didn't uh, didn't get it. But it was really funny. Yeah. All right, and we're going to wrap up the birthdays with November the 5th, 1946. American actress Sally Field, probably best known as the Flying Nun, I'm going to say. Huh. All right, for me, she's best known as Forrest Gump's mom. Yeah, she had a very long generational career. Like, she started out with the um, the TV show Gidget. Remember? Yeah, yeah, I do, actually. I remember well, Gidget. I, I mean, I only remember it in syndication, but I remember there being a show Gidget. Yep. And, and based on the that, movies. Like, that was yeah. one of the first, like, movie-to-TV crossovers, too. Right. Uh, she followed that up with The Flying Nun, which tanked, and it almost killed her career. But... She has, I mean, she's done it all since then. She was in the Smokey and the Bandit movies, got an Oscar for her portrayal in Norma Ray. Most recently, she was a very well-performed Aunt May in the Amazing Spider-Man movies. Yeah, she was. She was very good. Yep. Very, I was very actually good. very, very happy to see her. Whenever they cast her as Aunt May, I was like, oh, that's perfect. She was so good in it. Yep. She, her career is just super long. You're not even kidding. Uh, you go to our IMDb page, it's, you're going to be scrolling for a while. Lest we forget her really embarrassing Oscar acceptance speech when she did the, you like me, <laughs> like me. you, you really, really like me. Like me yeah. yeah. That was pretty funny. Yeah. As far as acceptance speeches go, that was, I mean, if that was a song, you know what I'm saying? You know, you know what I'm saying? The worst song ever. All right, Jeff, this week's pick for the worst song ever. I kind of alluded to it at the beginning of the show, Jeff. <laughs> I don't think you alluded to it. I think you just told everybody what it was. Yeah, flat know. out there. A question that has been pondered for the, at least the last 22 years. Who, just who let the dogs out, Jeff? <laughs> yes, who, 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 who? Even though we don't have to, because everybody knows this song, it's ubiquitous. Here's our little clip, and then we shall dissect. The party was nice, the party was bumping. And everybody having a bar. Until the fellas started in calling. And the girls respond to the call. I have a poor one shot. Who let the dogs out? 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 I got nothing to say. I'm going to preface my comments with this, which you hear from me surprisingly often, I think, on this show is, is I never go look for this song. I would, I have never thought of a reason that like, you know what I should do? I should go put on that Baja Men song right. because I need to know who let the dogs out. I never, ever, ever, ever do that. I never seek this song out on purpose. But when I bump into it, I'm always happy I found it. Really? Yeah. My, see. <laughs> yeah. So I have a weird intro or whatever to this song because this song was super popular in the year 2000. That's when it came out. Now, the year 2000 is when I started out as a haunted house actor. Mm -hmm. The room that I was working in at the haunted house, the scare point right before me was a dog house with a hydraulic alligator that when it got triggered would come shoot out at the people's feet and it would you know scare them. So right before people got into my room, the alligator prop would pop and everybody, and I mean everybody, would start singing Who Let the Dogs Out. <laughs> I can see why that would be sort of torturous for you. Every single person thought they were hilarious. And by the fourth weekend, I'm like, I am going to throttle the net. Who let the dogs out? Shut up. Shut yeah, up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was never in a position where I was sort of tortured with it that way. Mm. It's always been one of those songs like, oh, this is, it feels like it's advertising something to me. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not. It feels like something that should be like, it should come with like, snap into a Slim Jim. And then the song starts or the song ends. And then, you know, somebody says like, saltine crackers or some something. Tie oh, what was that dog food things. commercial from the 70s? Chuck Wagon? Yeah. Well, I yeah. don't know. Is it the one with the little wagon that came out? Yeah, from Chuck the Wagon. Yeah, that would have been like the perfect commercial. Uh, per, a jingle for that commercial. It's um, true. I've said this before. One of my favorite things about doing the show is all the you know the little research that we do, and I learn a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff that I would not, I would never want to know anything about the Baja Men. But I found out a bunch of stuff, and I thought some of it was pretty <laughs> interesting. 
Lay it on me. The Baja men, keep in mind, I'm not going to remember anybody's names, okay? Because, right. it, one, it's hard to keep track because if you look at the list of people that have been members of the Baja men, I don't, I don't even know that many people. It's a <laughs> huge list. So the band or the group started in 1977, okay? 22 years, 23 years before Who Let the Dogs Out came out. And the dogs were in. Yeah. They were in for a long time. They probably really had to go out 22 right. years, man. <laughs> they started out, I mean, they're a Caribbean band, right? I have, what I've never guessed with a name like the Baja Men. Yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they're really into Taco Bell's Mountain Dew flavor. So, at any rate, I started out in 1977, and the original name of the band was High Voltage, which sounds like a bar cover band. I was which, I was just going to say that. It sounds like somebody here at the Bayside going like, okay, like we've been practicing this one, and then they start to play the summer of 69. Yeah, key. yeah. <laughs> in a different in a different key signature than the original Acc- song was written. Accidentally in drop D, because the last yeah. song they played was Harvest Moon. Yeah. <laughs> so, at any rate... Then there was this other guy, this guy named Anselm Douglas, okay? And he wrote this song, you know, in the 80s uh, yeah. that didn't really even have a name. I mean, it's kind of called Who Let the Dogs Out, but everybody kind of like colloquially knew, knew the song as Doggy. Yeah. The bit of the song is these guys are in a club and they're kind of catcalling these girls and, you know, calling them all these different names and stuff. Right. And the girls are like, whoa, 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 who let the dogs out? And yeah, yeah. this one guy hears this song and records his own cover of it, right? And he's not Caribbean at all. He's just like this white guy. And he brings it over to his record producer friend. He goes, listen to this song, man. We got to record this song. Listen to this. And the guy's like, "Who's who is this? He goes, "Um, it's like... Jimmy Jack and the Funky Dogs or something like that. <laughs> so the, he listens to it, and the guy goes, this is you, isn't it? This is you singing, isn't it, on this? And he's like, yeah, it kind my, of is. But we got to find my, somebody to do this song. <laughs> Jimmy Jack and the Funky Dogs. It's something like that. I don't remember what it was called. It was something really generic like that. So High voltage. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so... They got they got this band, uh, you know, the Baja Men, who was, you know, they had a lot of albums out, but I mean, yeah. they they couldn't get themselves arrested. They weren't anybody, you know, in particular. And the guy that was like the leader of the Baja Men at the time, kind of like quit the band at the same time. So they were like, let's get somebody else to sing. And a bunch of people auditioned, and they like narrowed it down to three people, and they were like, just bring them all in. And those right. three people are what are now known as the Baja Men. Yeah. I looked through the Wikipedia page at all of yeah. past and current members of the band. And, and I, I was I told you earlier, I was convinced that they were like conscripted. It's like the Bahamanian army. You know, you turn 18 <laughs> and if you're old enough to sing, you have to be in the band for six months. <laughs> you, don't have a, you don't have a choice. You just get picked up by a bus and then you go on tour and then you get dropped off six months later with a Hawaiian shirt on like, good luck. Here's your GI Bill. Funny you should mention tour, okay? Because uh, Curiosity Kills This Cat. And I went and I looked up on setlist.fm. I wanted to see, you know, if they're still playing and, you know, what they're doing or whatever. Since 2017, so like five or six years, all of their gigs, all of them, are all at the International Food and Wine Festival over at the Epcot Center. And yeah, they'll makes do like, sense. Yeah, they'll do like three sets a day, you know, yep. for the thing. I had to dig back, Jeff. I had to dig back to October 28th of the year 2000. So at the same time that I was over at Spooky World for my first year, they were playing over at the Connecticut Expo Center in Hartford, Connecticut, just, you know, just down the street. Um, they did... Four songs. Opening track, Get Your Party On. Second song, You All Dat. Third song, Who Let the Dogs Out. And fourth song, Who Let the Dogs Out. (laughs) And the fifth song, Hey, where'd those guys go? Weren't they supposed to still be on stage for like 40 more minutes? (laughs) We paid you for an hour, you assholes. Who let the band out? Who let the band out? So there's not really much you can say about the Bahamen because they're a studio band, uh, you know, a studio project. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, that uh, which uh, is 
which is why I have a lot of issues with pop music because it's so man, it's just, it's manufactured is what it is. And, you know, we grew up in an era where we had bands and we got to know all the members and I knew every member's name of every band that I liked at most of the time, you know, looking forward to the next album and all that other stuff. And that just doesn't really exist in pop music. Not the same way. Anyway, it does. You just have to hunt for it. I think again, I'm a guy with two kids who are pop music fans. Sure. Somewhat. I'll tell you this. If you have access to Spotify or any other kind of music streaming service, go and look up the Baja men and look up the earliest stuff you can find anything prior to who let the dogs out it's nothing exciting it's nothing great but it's also kind of cool because it's traditional caribbean music yeah i'm sure it's a lot of fun i'm sure it's very i guess tropical is how i would describe it yeah not quite who let the dogs out i'll round out my comments with this like i said i i I never feel bad when i stumble into the song and it's been on a couple of running playlists that i've had now when I hear it, it reminds me of roller skating because I often hear it when I'm at like adult night for roller skating because it's got a good skating beat. So Really? I I would think that that has too fast of a beat that you would like just like pile, like a big well, pile up on the, on the floor. It, it's especially good during the speed skate uh, yeah. component of the night. All right. Before we wrap up the show, I do have my uh, very popular and always well-received trivia question. All right, Jeff, there was a football game, November the 4th, 1979. The Seattle Seahawks got their asses handed to them by the Los Angeles Rams. They only made X amount of yards in this football game, Jeff. It is the lowest amount of yards in a single game by an NFL team. How many yards did the Seattle Seahawks manage to get? I'm going to demonstrate my shockingly shallow knowledge of football mm-hmm. uh, by simply just guessing 42.3 yards. Seven, Jeff. They made seven yards. So they I, was, never... I was wrong by a factor of six. <laughs> they never even made a first down. They made seven yards the whole game. Tell you what, that's going to play and just getting the surprisingly amount of guano just wailed out of you. That must have been terrible. They they would have been better off being replaced with a high school team at that point. Well, the the worst part was is that half of the team was off because they were recruited into the Baja men. Ah. (laughs) All right. That's going to wrap it up for this week. Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. Yeah. And we will see you back here in seven days. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, where this week was way better last year. You can find us on messages over on Facebook or Instagram using TWWWBLY. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And remember, when you tell your friends and get them to listen to Twibbly, it makes you popular and always well-received.